This is episode 193 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, School Assessments, A Rigorous Look. This episode is part of our ongoing series about education and teaching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am really delighted to continue our series on education and teaching. And today I have with me a new guest, David Ritkowski. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. It's good to meet you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, which is really about uh, educational assessment, school assessment. And I'll introduce David. He's an associate professor with a joint appointment in educational policy and educational inquiry at Indiana University. Yay, IU, my alma mater. I'm so really pleased to welcome David today. Prior to IU, he was a professor of educational measurement at the University of Oslo in Norway. His research focuses on educational policy and educational measurement with specific emphasis on international large-scale assessment and program evaluation. So really interesting topic for us today. Uh, He's collaborated with or consulted for national and international organizations, including, you're going to get a whole bunch of acronyms here, well, the U.S. State Department, USAID, UNESCO, the IEA, and the OECD. He's worked on and led evaluations and projects in over 20 countries, so really international in scope. And he's published so many publications way, way longer than my arms put together. But he's also the co-editor of the Handbook of International Large-Scale Assessment, and then recently co-authored this book called The Global Education Race, Taking the Measure of PISA and International Testing. He, he has an interesting background. He got an associate's degree from the elect- in electronic systems technology from the Community College of the Air Force, and then totally switched gears and got a bachelor's in economics from the University of New Mexico. And then walking toward uh, what he does now, master's from the University of Illinois in educational policy, and then finally a PhD in educational policy from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. So David, first I have to ask you in the subtitle of your book, Taking the Measure of PISA, what's PISA? It's PISA. It's um, an international assessment. Yeah, and it's an international assessment of uh, different countries from around the world where, where they measure on math, reading, and science of 15 years. So is that something that kind of everybody agrees is a good assessment across uh, global boundaries, uh, international boundaries? Uh, I'm not sure if everyone agrees. Okay. There's definitely a, a critical arm of what PISA can uh, say and do. It's it's funny um, in the United States, this you know international assessment isn't 
something that most people know, um, although a lot of people have seen rankings of where the United States ranks internationally in education. Uh-huh. So that's that's where normally where the information is coming from. Um, but in other countries, the PISA exam is um, has really transformed educational systems uh, from the results. Germany is one of the prime examples we often use, but a lot in Europe and Asia have really used this assessment to really uh, enact change of their educational systems. Well, that's interesting. We do hear about how the U.S. compares to other countries, but most of us never ask, you know, well, how did they figure that out or what? What assessment tool are they are they using? Okay, so introduce us to the field of education assessment. What assessments are considered valuable, and are those the same as like the state tan- t- standardized test that we always hear about? In education assessment, um, we generally divide. There's a, w- a lot of ways we slice and dice what an educational assessment is. Um, generally, we could say there's a formative and summative assessment, right? And so Formative assessments are, you know, to help improve the learning process where summative assessment says if the student learned what they were supposed to learn, right? So it's a summative, summative decision. Um, and then we, we could further break down assessments in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, classroom assessment is one whole area of study and something I really don't focus in. And that's normally what the teacher does and how the teacher interacts with the students to engage with learning, right? And then we have um, standardized assessment, which is the thing I'm mostly interested in and where my research uh, and focus in. And th- this is the statewide um, testing, although it doesn't have to be statewide. Um, we have standardized assessment at the national level, um, at the international level. And in fact, uh, schools uh, implement sometimes different standardized assessments for interim uh, purposes to gauge where their students are at certain places and time. Uh, just to summarize that again, so you do focus on what we might call standardized tests. Some of those are state, some of those are across state boundaries, and then some are across international boundaries. Did I get that straight? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, good. I, I just wanted to make sure that I'm following along here. And so tell me what criticisms are leveled at tools like that. You know, you hear parents sometimes complaining, oh, the teachers are teaching to a test. Do you think that's a valid criticism? You know, this idea of teaching to the test, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced teaching to the test is a bad thing. Uh huh. So I think we have to uh, kind of deconstruct the, the, what that actually means a little bit. Is it bad to teach children how to answer specific questions on a test? Maybe. Is it bad if a test is designed well, a standardized assessment, it should be designed to measure what the curriculum and the standards. Um, And so if if that's all aligned correctly, well, that's okay to teach to the test because that means you're teaching the curriculum and you're teaching to the standards. You know, it's it's, it's a strange thing. I, I know this teaching to the test became really popular uh, as a criticism that we don't want teachers doing that. But if, if things are set up correctly, it, in fact, we do want schools and teachers teaching to the test because the test should be measuring the curriculum or the state standards. I think that's a really excellent and exciting point that if the test is doing what it's supposed to, yes, exactly. You do want them teaching 
those standards and that will be reflected on the test. That's such a great point. Thank you for making that. And then, okay, so is there, I know we're, this is going to be a hard question to answer, but so when we compare tests, is there a way to evaluate what tests are better than others? Yeah, for sure. And this comes down to a validity question. I, I often joke with uh, my students when I teach them about validity. For years, every week, I, I told myself I was going to sit down and read an article about validity and really try to understand what validity means. And and I'm I'm still reading and still trying to understand. <laughs> it's it's tough, right? It's a tough concept. But in general, in assessment, what we think about when we talk about validity, or at least the way I view it, is uh, through an interpretation and use. So um, we never want to say test is valid. We want to say that you know the interpretations and uses we make about that test are valid. Okay. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is because then it we have to think about. Um, is the test uh, comparable or is, is there a better test or a worse test? But it depends on what inference or interpretation we want to make from the test. Oh. And that's where we start to judge. Okay. Uh, so I presume we have experts like you that, that help us do that. Can you give us a sense of what tools you all use to determine the uh, whether or not you're correctly interpreting assess a test. Yeah, that, yeah, that's there's, there's a whole wealth of tools. So we do um, uh, a lot of what well, I think is fun, but most people would think was the most boring thing they ever thought of, um, of statistical tests, right? And that's where we examine um, the results from the test in certain ways to make sure that the test is operating how we think it should be operating. For example. Are people just getting a question wrong uh, because of their background? So are girls doing worse on one item than boys? And we don't really, it, it doesn't have to do with their quote unquote ability in that subject. It's just because uh, of, of their gender. Mm -hmm. and so we, we don't want those questions on the test. And we examine tests in a lot of different ways to, to look for things like that. But we also um, do other more qualitative based things where, you know, we do. Uh, look at questions uh, very deeply uh, and have experts uh, look at the questions and examines. We do talk out louds with students where students sit down, answer a question, we have them explain how they got to the answer. So there's a lot to go into the process of getting the validity uh, evidence we need so we can make interpretations later. Good. Okay. Also really helpful. And then uh, tell us if assessment measures have changed over the years or not. Have they evolved very much from back in the you know days where a lot of my listeners would have taken standardized tests, or are yeah, things pretty immensely. similar now? Oh, immensely. Oh, interesting. Yeah, tell us. This is it gets a little technical, but years ago uh, we used to use um, uh, it, we call it classical test theory to look at tests. So that's classical test area is exactly what you, your teacher did in the classroom. It's kind of a percent correct, right? So you take a test and you do a percent correct on, uh, on the test. And that's, that's how you, how you operate it on the test. Of course, it got more complicated over time, but that's the basic idea. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe in the 1960s and 1970s, the theory came out a little bit uh, earlier. 
um, but we changed uh, the way we analyze and think about tests and uh, we call it modern test theory. Uh, mostly um, uh, comes out of item response theory and the field of measurement. So we stopped looking uh, at tests in a certain way and we started believing that we can model people's behaviors in, this, in these ideas. And, and when we think about measurement, the idea is that we're putting a number on the objects, just like they do in physics. So what we're trying to do is put a number to a student's ability level. Um, and we don't quite know what that ability level is. So we ask them a bunch of questions on a test. And in modern test theory, each question is, is modeled separately. So that opens up a whole new way of, of doing tests. Now, fast forward to the last 10 years, 15 years with computer assessments, mm -hmm. um, things are changing quite rapidly again. So yeah, there's, there's a big process. Um, and computer adaptive testing has really changed the way we, we look at tests. So is the distinction that we used to sort of consider every question equally valid. And so if a person missed, make it easy here, one question out of 10, then they were as good as nine out of 10. But now with modern test theory, and I'm making this up as I go along here. So is it more the case that we're trying to uh, figure out something about the student. And so each question gives us a little bit more information. Is that a better way of thinking about it? I think it's a really nice way of putting it. Of course, I mean, um, we could go down the rabbit hole of, <laughs> of this really uh, um, in-depth conversation about this. And I'm sure that's not exactly where you want to go with the podcast. <laughs> but um, but one of the great things of the way you explained it, so let's look at computer adaptive testing as an example of why that's important. Um, because in a computer adaptive test, uh, we have, in a, in, we know kind of the ability level of the student. We start to estimate that. And each question has an ability level with it. Mm. So in computer adaptive test, we can give the student a medium question. If they get that right, oh. then we can give them a harder question. If they get that wrong, we can go back to a medium question. And that means we can be much more accurate um, on that student's ability level. So we can zone in on the questions that they can get right and keep them from the questions that they're, you know, probably not going to get right. So we're, our accuracy is, is so much closer, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I I teach English as a second language as one other part of my life. And so students are often asking me how they build their vocabulary. And you know, of course, it's just easy to say read, right? But that's such a long, you know, it's such a long process. And so I started looking around to see if there might be anything out there that would help people. And I came across this website. Now I'm going to do a plug for these people called vocabulary.com. And it's a it's an assessment. So it offers you questions and then it assesses your answer on those. And so it very quickly will change the level of the question appropriate. You know, if you start getting a whole bunch of things right, well, the questions start getting harder and harder. And I got so engrossed in this thing. I spent like an hour playing with it, but I was amazed at how good the software is, at how fast it could figure out kind of where my level of vocabulary is, which is not 
you know, not extraordinary. It's not something I'm super, super proud of. So very fast, it was finding a lot of words that I didn't know or like alternate definitions for words that I did know. So, wow, my hat is off to whoever's designing that software. It seemed really good. Yeah, and that and that's kind of revolutionizing the um, ways we're testing students. What's also interesting about it is it, it becomes difficult to talk to people sometimes about the test because not all students take the same questions. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's where people start to get a, a little uneasy right, mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. that. But going back to the theory again is is we're trying to measure an ability level. Um, we're not measuring exactly how you did on that question, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, that that's it's a different approach. Okay, so to bring us back down out of the clouds here. So is, do you think it's fair to use these student assessment tests as a measure of the teacher or school effectiveness? Are there any problems that we should be aware of with that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of problems. Um, my, I always say my goal in life is, um, I, even though I did my undergrad in economics, I feel like the only thing I do is argue with educational economists now. Um, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Is, <laughs> Born to argue. Yeah, but the reason is, is because we, when we go back to that validity thing I said earlier, we, we have to always go back into what is the test intended to do, right? Mm. Um, and so we, we have to think is, is this test uh, uh, intended to measure student effectiveness? Now, some tests are. Or teacher um, effectiveness. Teacher effectiveness, sorry. Uh-huh. Some mm-hmm. tests are, but some tests aren't. So I can give you a little example of a study I did here in Indiana. We went out, and it was a fun study. I really liked the study. I did it years ago. But we went out, and we went to, uh, to a classroom with a teacher with three general English education students. And I said I was going to give the students a test. And what I did is I used just released items from a standardized assessment. But the first group I told, I just read the generic, what the state reads to students about uh, their state assessment, right? So please try hard. This is important for policymakers, blah, blah, blah. The second group I told that this test was going to count for their teacher's pay. Oh, mm-hmm. and then the third one, I said, this test is going to count for your grade. And the performance on the tests, um, what do you think happened? Maybe. I, I, well, I, I, I guess I would think the students would try really hard for their teacher, whether it would have been pay or anything else. That, that would be my guess, but I, I don't know. You're right. Um, and, and when they're grading their teacher, that came out um, the same. But the students did, and I use classical test theory for this, the students did 15% uh, uh, lower on the assessment, um, and they were randomized. Um, so they, they did a lot uh, worse on the assessment when they when it was just a generic thing that we read. Yeah. Students, And so that kind of tells us is that we need to be open and honest with the kids. And when we're not, then we have a threat to the validity of using that for teacher effectiveness, right? And so that's just one threat of one reason we shouldn't. And there's a whole host of other reasons. So you exposed that. You exposed that problem. Yeah. And that's what we try to do when we do about research, uh, when we do research on these kind of measurement issues 
and, and that becomes the problem when, again, going back to my economist friends, when they try to use these assessments in their models to predict things. Well, when the test wasn't intended to do that, mm. we're not really sure we're giving you the information you need to make those um, claims. And that's the thing that worries me. Right. Yeah. Be careful what else is out there. That's the way it is with testing. It's, uh, it's often more complicated than we think. Well, I'm glad you brought up Indiana. So I haven't lived in the state for decades and decades, but I try and sort of keep an eye on what's happening there since I went through that system, all the public schools and got uh, all of my degrees from Indiana University. And so somewhere, you know, over the past few years, I read that Indiana students had failed to make grade level in like across the state. I mean, it just seemed like a, a horrific problem with education. So what's behind that story? What's happening in Indiana? Is it worrying? What What's going on? Um, I, I'm not sure that exact story, but it's we we've changed tests recently and so uh that was one thing that happened we moved from a state assessment that was called istep to iLearn and that happened two years ago and when they when they made the test the test is more rigorous um and so when you create a more rigorous test students don't do as well Oh, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was one, I think that was one of the issues. Um, but if, if we want to look at trend, then we have to go back to the national assessment and that's called NAEP, um, National Ed- uh, Education Assessment and Educational Progress, right? So in NAEP, uh, we, we have historical data of how um, each state does in fourth and eighth grade math, and they do other subjects as well, history, civics. In, in there, we see Indiana. Um, Indiana, I don't know if you, we, they always make jokes about the Midwest being average, but uh, Indiana is about average on that assessment. Oh, okay. And it, it hasn't changed over the years. Um, and I think the last time I looked, Indiana and California were fairly similar on, um, on, on those assessments. Yeah. So you've done some research that shows that actually some of the schools in Indiana were doing quite well in math. So how did that come about? What do you chalk that up to? Yeah, that's, it's actually interesting. As a state, in in international assessments, Indiana took, in 2011, uh, they took the Tim's assessment as, quote unquote, a country. So we, they were able to compare themselves to the rest of the world. And then we saw our students actually did pretty well um, in, in eighth grade math. And I know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Finland as the great educational um, system in the world. It's, it, it got popular for a while. Those who are interested in education often hear Finland as the darling. But Indiana did better than Finland. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I always think that's one of the interesting things that uh, how on this particular test they did better. There was another test that Finland did better, but Indiana didn't take. And that's where Finland became the darling of the world. Um, but it's interesting how it's, it's just the assessment or, or what goals we put on that assessment um, could really influence how differently uh, people do. Oh, and and how we interpret it, right? I mean, the headlines never explain things like that. No, no, they don't explain things like that. Um, and, and I think that also goes to, 
deeper in your question of why do we see on the news that, you know, the U.S. is doing so poorly or Indiana particularly is doing so poorly, which seems to be the rhetoric that we often see. And, and there, I think that's a political issue. You know, Indiana is really a, um, a conservative state and, and one of the hotbeds for uh, private schools and voucher schools. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't work very well politically if you say that the state's doing fine, right? We need to redo the whole educational system. It, it only works to reimagine the educational system if we're failing. And so I think that narrative comes from there too. So I, I, I think, you know, there, there are issues and there, there's some really bad issues uh, in, in our state schools, but we also have some really great ones too. Yeah, you've really taken the top off that can of worms because that has been my suspicion as well, that Indiana is considered one of the forerunners in its usage of, of vouchers. And so how much is behind these, oh my God, the sky is falling in Indiana. They're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> you know, how, how much of that is, is related to we have to squash vouchers and show that students are doing really poorly. So, so if you can, you know, this is your area of expertise. Do you think, I don't want you to pass judgment on vouchers necessarily, though, if you want to, I'd be interested in your opinion, but do you think that these different ways that we are exploring in Indiana truly are wrecking the education system or or what do you, what do you think is happening? Well, I I guess that goes to my idea on vouchers. Um, I, I just, be honest about this. I'm a um, product of public schools. I always went to a public, I went to public universities and, and I've dedicated my life to public education. So I'm, I'm very embedded in that like philosophy that public education is, is super important. What confuses me about the voucher and privatization of education, especially in a state like Indiana is in a rural state, it, it doesn't really make much sense, right? I, I can, you could see in urban areas where there could be competition. Mm-hmm. There's just not going to be competition in, in rural Indiana uh, for a school. It really changes how we look at things. Unfortunately, even the, um, the biggest advocate of privatization or, or charter schools has to come to terms with the data just doesn't show that they're better. Some are good, some are not good. Mm-hmm. And it's the same as our public schools. I, we have some of the best public schools in the world. I see. And unfortunately, we have some of the worst. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I, I, I do a lot of work internationally. and Some of our schools are just as bad as schools when I go to countries that have half the income that we do. Um, it's, it's terrible. I see. Then you go to other schools and they're just phenomenal. Um, so how we have that big, those big differences, then I could see why people want change. And, and of course, you, having charter schools or um, uh, private schools is, is, is a way forward to enact that change, um, or, or so the story goes. Yeah, which, so that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So give us a sense inside the state my listeners probably aren't way familiar with Indiana, but they probably know some of it. So are you seeing good schools in towns like Bloomington, where there's a big university and not so great in, I'm just 
throwing out all these stereotypes in Indianapolis or or what what are you what do you see across the state? Yeah, and, and that's really mixed. Of course, like everything else in the United States, affluent areas tend to have great schools. Okay. Right? And that's just the way it is. And the states tried to do a lot of things of forcing schools, especially with teacher pay. All teachers in the state, the, the way the funding works is um, Indiana uh, as a state controls the funding much more than other states do. So it's less important on the property tax. Um, but even in, in to that extent, um, you know, local governments find a way to get their schools a little more money and to make them a little bit nicer. So what happens is that there's still this kind of unevenness. And so there are really rural schools in Indiana that are just, that are in really bad shape. In really bad shape. So some of the rural schools, so it's really small, really small towns. So maybe. I'll, I'll give a plug for you um, of a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Medora. Mm. It's, it's a Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. It's just a wonderful documentary. And I have all my students in my policy class. It's, it's now a few years old, but it's just amazing. And it really talks about the, an unincorporated school district. And it's, it's not the school as much as it's just the lives of the people that are, are living there. Right. Mm. We know we have opioid problems in Indiana. What do we expect? And one of the things we know about education is it's, it's really the background that you come from and your parent engagement that, that really matters. It matters so much. I see. There's only so much the school can do in situations where kids don't have a, um, a safe environment at home. Mm-hmm. And so zooming out a little bit. Well, before I go on to my next question, I just want to comment about that because it's interesting that, you know, we get this view of a state. And so for across Indiana, you can make this generalization sort of average with differences between different districts. But then when you look at a state like California, where I live now, where we do have a large number of charter schools, that's really become very popular in this state. And we see huge differences across districts. But again, overall, you know, you can see these average results. So it's just interesting that a state as complicated as California and not as simple, but but certainly smaller, less populous, a state like Indiana, you see these kind of these same results. Do you have a sense that that happens across all the states? That there's such a division um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I yes, I, I couldn't imagine. I I can't think of a state that's has homogeneous results uh, across the state. Even even yeah, even our most rural states, I'm positive, will have a pretty big deviation between how schools operate. And in let's even take away charter schools and private schools and just look at uh, a traditional public school. Oh. The differences are are stark. Interesting. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so can we compare, do we have any assessments that help us compare across states? Yeah. So the um, NAEP assessment helps us uh, compare across state, but that's not, it's a sample of assessment. So we don't necessarily, some districts do take it as as a sample, but we don't necessarily um, uh, have the whole population. So we we can't really compare schools too much with, with that assessment. Um, so across states, uh, 
then then you would have to be able to um, uh, take a common assessment. And we tried that, and that's when they came up with the Common Core standards. I don't know if you've heard about those. Oh yes, but they had <laughs> yes, and and so they had two assessments with that. Unfortunately, the most states either backed out or um, got rid of those assessments, went through their own assessment. And now Smarter Balance is one of the bigger assessments. And in a, a, a good amount of states take Smarter Balance. So there you would be able to compare. But otherwise, that would be the only data we have to compare. Oh, I've never heard of Smarter Balance. Yeah, it's the um, assessment that uh, measures the Common Core standards. There, there were two assessments. The federal government, that's where the federal government gave money to Common Core. They didn't fund the Common Core, but they funded the assessments for the Common Core. Oh. Or provided a lot of money for them. Oh, I see. So if we look across the United States, are there any states that stand out as being particularly good? Like, does anybody break out of this average uh, trap? Yeah, historically, it's always been Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, so that's usually like one of the pinnacles. There's others. New Jersey does pretty well. Um, mm. But yeah, Massachusetts is usually the uh, darling of, of the United States. And whenever they take part in, uh, as a, we call them a benchmarking place to compare themselves around the world, they usually do fairly well, uh, ranking in the top 10. So Massachusetts, and there's a few other states too, as I said, New Jersey, I think Connecticut does okay. But um, yeah, Massachusetts is usually the, the, the one that we look to, towards. That's, that's really interesting. My sister lives in Cambridge, so her children are going through the public school system there. I have to say, I haven't been particularly wowed by those schools, but maybe these differences are kind of hard to see, you know, if you're just a casual outside observer. Sure. Right. And, and then we, you know, and these, the tests that we're measuring are, uh, you know, they're not extremely detailed in, in their general ideas around math or reading, for example, or maybe science, but we know we have so many other subjects. I see. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Devil's always in the details. So um, just to put this more for the general public here, do you have any recommendations for parents when they're looking at school districts and trying to interpret results, are, are there things that they should keep in mind as they're looking at those numbers? I think the first thing to keep in mind is that a school is more than these results on a standardized assessment, right? Uh-huh. So we, we have to take, I think you have to take more into account than just the results. And I, I can't overstate how important that is. Because if we think about what's happening in the standardized assessment, Normally, it's one day of testing of what a student knows at the end of the year, right? And now we're putting that, and normally it's only in a few subjects. So math, science, maybe reading. And so there's so much more to look at to see if a school's uh, a strong school. So I look at many other indicators and indicators that are important to you and your family. But being an engaged parent, um, and if the school has the resources you need, I think that's much more important than how the students do on a standardized test score. I think that's really good advice. I'm thinking about as I would go visit the classrooms in the spring, uh, we weren't supposed to have any influence on who our children got as a teacher in the fall, but I would go around and visit all the classrooms and, and then, you know, kind of have a, 
an opinion of who my uh, children would, who I thought, you know, a teacher that would do well uh, for them. And I remember, especially at the very beginning, I would just look at the number of books in the classroom. I was like, I just feel as though that's it. So I had my own little, <laughs> my own little tool about how I would measure a teacher that I thought would be a good teacher. But of course, you go by the teacher's personality. I just think that's an interesting observation because the teacher makes such a big difference. I love that you did that. I, this is going to go in a little different direction, but I just wanted to tell you something that's kind of funny. Historically, we've used books in the homes as a measure of socioeconomic status and oh. international, national assessments for many, many years. So We must be super rich in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, where's all that money? <laughs> so that's, that's really great. That's what you look at. Interesting. And then I would also say, as I'm thinking about the school districts, as the children grew and the school districts got bigger, we weren't, you know, then they would have more than one teacher, right? But just on my own experience, and we're in a fantastic school district, we're extremely fortunate where we live. But I must say there's a pretty big range in the teachers. I mean, there were a couple teachers that were pretty newell you know, that just weren't very active in their teaching at all. And then there were other teachers that were just fantastic. This, this is one of the issues with teachers, right? Um, and, and there's great teachers and, you know, even us that are advocates of, of the teaching profession have to admit there's some pretty bad teachers too, right? There's a mix. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems though, like you, you probably know about too and have talked to others about in your education series here is that we don't have a big bench of teachers. So, you know, we have the people we have, so we have to work with them. And that's why the engagement of the parent becomes so important, right? You're not always going to get, you know, the best teacher. So then parents take up some of that slack. And and that's where we see the students performing so much higher. Okay, zooming out even more. Let's talk to us about assessments across the globe, because that's really an area that you specialize in, such an interesting area. So how do you compare U.S. students to other students, to students in other countries? Yeah, uh, we do, right? And so we we administer assessments. There's two big ones that you, there's a bunch of them, but the two largest ones are called um, TIMS and PISA. Um, and their assessments, uh, PISA is done by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, uh, and that focuses on 15-year-olds. And it's a test of what the OECD believes 15-year-olds should be able to do, know and do, to operate in an economy. Oh. Yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the purpose of that test. Okay, interesting. Uh, and then we have Tim's assessment, which is curriculum-based. So they got all of the countries together together. They found out what was common on their curriculum, and then they test that. Those are the two different international assessments. They're both pretty good tests. And, and for macro, larger issues, they, they do pretty well. Where I, where I see problems is at the fringes. Lower performing countries have, uh, there's some floor effects there. But one of the other things is we have to be careful who we, as the United States, compare with. Uh, I was at a meeting once, and they were comparing uh, the United States and they're making a comparison with Iceland and Norway. 
And I was like, this is the most ridiculous conversation I've ever had. Iceland has 300,000 people. Mm-hmm. Norway has 500,000 people. We have like 320 million people. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Like what, why would we, that, that comparison is, is just not logical, right? Uh-huh. So that, that's the one thing I, I often stress that we need to be a bit careful uh, when, when we compare to other countries. Uh, because like you said, uh, it's the difference between apples and oranges and the things that we deal with with the United States is much, are much different. Now, um, that's why states in the United States become so important to compare. Why does Massachusetts do so much better than Mississippi? Oh, wow. Alabama, you know, those are things that we can really dig into and, and try to un- untangle. Or why does, you know, Montana and Alberta, why do they have such, in, in Canada as a province, why do they have such differences? And, and so those are interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the work you do is really interesting the more I hear about it. Yeah, trying to understand what's behind those numbers. And, and so kind of where does the United States stand? You know, again, just to go beyond the headlines, we often read, oh, you know, the United States is terrible. But kind of where do we stand? In the middle. Um, okay. <laughs> which, which isn't horribly surprising given how, how large we are and how much deviation we have. That's one of the hard things. Is And one of the things is if you, for example, unpack our scores by race in the United States, then you can see just, just how unequal the schooling systems have to be. Really? Because our, our white and Asian students compared to our black and Hispanic students, the, the gap is just so huge. Um, really? It's unimaginable. Wow. And in, in, in fact, I often say that somebody needs to be put in prison for how big those gaps are. <gasps> really? Um, yeah. U.S. white students rank much higher in the world. And um, if we looked at some of our minority groups, they're, they're ranking, if, if we just took them as a group, they're ranking, uh, they're getting scores in some of the lower developing countries in the world. Wow. So it's, it's just shocking. It's shocking. Wow. That's really amazing. So, you know, we did this episode last week about school financing, and it seems as though it's not so much about money, right? That that we are spending a lot of money in schools that are primarily uh, for students of color. Do you? So what do you think is happening? Yeah, this is complicated. You know, the U.S. spends some of the most money in the world on schooling, right? So we, oh. we know we spend a lot of money on schooling. Spent in weird ways, though, right? And so I'm, I, I can't wait to listen to that uh, podcast because when I saw, when I went and run through your podcast, I was like, wow, I got to listen to that. I might use it in my class. I'm sure students would love it. Um, but the as, as you guys probably talked about, you know, the way we divvy up the funding is is can be different. And, and that is one of the problems. And the other thing is, is that we have such, so many inequalities in the United States that schools in the United States have to feed their students. That doesn't happen in most countries in the world. Um, the United States have to do what to their students? Feed the students, right? So oh, feed them. Feed, feed them. them. Oh, yeah. I see. So we provide oh. breakfast and lunches. Um, and even in Bloomington, uh, they provide a, a school washing service, right? So they have, so they can wash some kids' clothes. Oh. And so all of that costs money. Right. And other countries aren't doing that, 
right? They're not spending any money in those situations. Our sports, uh, we spend a lot of money in sports. Other countries spend no money on that. So saying that we spend a lot of money on education is, is kind of confusing compared to the rest of the world, right? Where's that money actually going? I think that's one of the big problems. And also the inequality, what we know is that rich parents or parents that are engaged are always going to find a way to get their students, their, their teachers, or their kids to do better, right? They're always going to find a way. Um, and somebody has to lose. And it, it, unfortunately, in the US, it's often the poor kids. I see. This is a bit of a, a side here, but my kids are now out of the K through 12 schools and either graduated from college or in college. And so it's been interesting for me to watch what's happening with the pandemic. And as I say, I'm surrounded by these really extraordinary school districts. And one of the first things that happened, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little bit taken aback by the vehemence, was the parents were just on it. Like, I swear the schools closed on March 19th or something like that. And it seemed like by March 22nd already, the parents were like, what's going on? What's happening? Where's, where are the, my, my child hasn't done anything for one day. You know, it's just like, wow, the power of the parents in these school districts is just amazing. It is. And it's really amazing. And, you know, we often think that can we get people in, and it's not that all parents in poor areas are not engaged. It's just that, I mean, they're also dealing with, you know, food insecurities, mm-hmm. paying rent. And, and so we have to, you know, also appreciate that there's just, it's such a complicated problem. And I think there's a misconception that schools can solve all these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we learn that they can. That is one of the things that I've been learning through these episodes about education is how much the schools are doing to provide what we might call a social safety net, you know, that somehow it's the schools that are stepping in to really help these students just live their life. It's, it's tough to see. And for a lot of kids, it's the only safe place they get to go to. Right. So it's just, it's, you know, it's shocking and sad. And with the large income inequalities that we have, you know, that could explain a lot of the performance issues that we find. That's usually the thing that explains the most variance in test scores is in students' home background. Yeah, yeah. All right, so to go to the other extreme here and go way back in time, when I was just going into eighth grade, my father took a sabbatical and took us all to Paris, France. And so I transferred from the public schools in Bloomington, Indiana, to this school in in a very uh, affluent area in Paris. And I was a good student. You know, I was the daughter of a professor and took schoolwork very seriously. So I was a good student in Bloomington. And then when I got in that school in Paris, it was just unbelievable to me how much those kids knew. I mean, just the amount of history that they knew. They were at least several grades ahead of me in math. They were already on their third language. And then, you know, in eighth grade, they were taking chemistry and technical drawing. I mean, it was just amazing to me how good those those kids were. And I often think about that when I just see the level of just seems like general education amongst French people. So as you hear that story, do you think that those differences would have been picked up by assessment tools 
like just are you nodding or are you shaking your head? No, it's it's really it's it's really fascinating because that's definitely one of the critiques of people when they either come foreign students go or come from uh, the United States and it's a critique I've heard quite a bit. So you're not alone in that uh, observation. I can tell you what we see. Uh, first of all, the language thing is just a trap. The United States is so far behind of teaching language, um, mm. only focusing on English. It's I just sad. I, oh. I have no other word for it than that. Um, okay. I, I don't understand why every student in the United States doesn't also speak Spanish, right? I mean, right. It's, yeah. so it's, it's in our everyday life now. Um, but going to the, the how, how much more advanced they are, Studies are mixed on this, uh, but when we went out and tested uh, at the 12th grade level, uh, what we found was that the data doesn't bear that out. Yeah. And so we don't really see the European countries or especially France or other European countries doing that much better. And, and France is always an interesting case study because on international assessment, they usually rank right around the United States. Okay. So where they go. But yeah. But the individual critique is normally that. And, and I would say that if you sent a kid to the same in the same situation today, they would probably say the same thing. So Interesting. I, I've never got a handle of what's actually going on, but we don't see it in the assessment results. Interesting. Yeah, it's just fascinating. But again, maybe it was the particular school that I transferred from and the particular school that I was dropped into. Sure, and that that's completely a possibility. But it's it's but you're not alone in that observation, by the way. The other thing I should say, just because it is a, a more fair, is that the you know in France they start tracking you quite early, yes. and the track which we don't do in the United States are not quite the same way. And so the track that I went into was the math and science track, and so okay. that you know that that. It probably would a little bit different if I'd gone into, you know, language arts or, or something different. Yeah, that that's complete possibility. The other thing I uh, put a caveat on that: the uh, Asian schools. When I'm, if we think about Korea, Japan, um, parts of China, uh, Taiwan, Singapore. Now they they really beat the pants out of uh, off of us. Um, they they just do so much better. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay, so I know I'm starting to run out of time, but I really want to ask you this question. So sometimes, we, again, we see these things pop up uh, either in the news or on social media, these questions like, could you pass a high school test from the 40s? And then they give us a bunch of questions that are, to me, really hard, like, you know, history questions or math questions. And so sometimes it feels like, boy, people were really smart when they got a high school a diploma back then, and now we're just a whole bunch of dummies. So, do you, do you think the quality of high school education is, has declined that much, or what what's happening there? Okay, I'm not sure. So, you picked the 1940s. I don't know if you did that on purpose, but that was a real special like time frame in the U.S. because that's about when half of the country started to get high school degrees. Oh, um, so it's an interesting time. Uh, but now we're at what. So we just took a little fall, I think, but I, my numbers are a little vague here, but maybe like 68% uh, is where we're at today. I think it fell a little bit from 73%. So anytime we're going to add more people from different populations, um, because before, if 
you were probably poor, who dropped out in the 1940s. Ah. As we include more of those people, of course, the curriculum is going to have to be a little bit different, obviously easier. But with that said, I think we're, we're seeing more divides uh, than ever before. Uh, for example, I have friends in New Mexico, and it's not really an elite school in New Mexico, uh, in, in Albuquerque, but th- their kids go to Calc 2 and taking two or three years of Japanese, you know? So oh. it's just unbelievable. And in, in here in Bloomington, I know that you can take Calc 2. Mm-hmm. I doubt in school in the 1940s was teaching Calc 2. Gotcha. So I, I think but th- we're seeing the, the big divide. I, I bet schools were much more homogeneous in the 1940s. And I see. Especially high school. Gotcha. Well, it's a, such a fascinating topic, but I know that I have to let you go. Before I do, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience where they could follow your work or learn more or really any resources you think they should be aware of? Well, I guess uh, we have a project website, which is uh, Embracing Heterogeneity. In that, is is kind of talks about our work. My wife is also an academic with me. Oh. Um, so, so we actually do a lot of our research together. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's kind of fun. The other thing I would just say is that I think becoming more assessment literate is is something that I think we all need to do, especially as as we move through education uh, and, and become more involved in education. And I think pushing your teachers and in your programs to uh, improve assessment literacy, because there's nothing else that is controlling our school systems more than educational assessments. Oh, yet no one seems to understand them very well, right? So when we don't understand those things, they can be manipulated in, in a lot of different ways. So I think that's my closing remark with that. I think that's a really great takeaway. Thank you so much for the work that you do in this important area. And thanks for coming on the show. It was really fun. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.